So DealQuest listeners, I am so excited to have Michael Van on an upcoming episode of DealQuest. Just a huge amount of experience in M&A, succession, et cetera. So Michael, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself and what we're going to hear on your episode of DealQuest. Great. So we're a strategic consulting and transaction advisor, and we work with small, mid-sized companies on you know, executing their strategies and, and planning their exits. And what we're going to talk about in our conversations, what's going on in the current M&A market, some of the challenges and obstacles that we see with internal succession, and some lessons to learn about when you do go do a deal that you should be prepared to address, like having the right attorney. <laughs> and not only that, but that will, I'm sure that'll come up. And uh, I know uh, we mentioned, I mean, uh, you're an expert in a, lot of the, in a lot of this area, but you do have a book, right, out on uh, internal succession. So what's the name of the book? Buying Out the Boss, The Successor's Guide to Succession Plan, which is written from the perspective of the buyer rather than the seller. There we go. So hear a little bit more about that. So look out for Michael Van's episode on the DealQuest podcast. Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Let's get started. Michael Van is the president of the Van Group, a strategic consulting and transactional advisory firm that works with owners and leadership teams and privately held and mid-sized businesses. His areas of expertise include strategic facilitation, succession, transition planning, mergers and acquisitions. The internal ownership transition expert, he serves as a trusted advisor to owners of companies who value his practical and personable approach and his ability to simplify complex business issues into an actionable plan. He has successfully advised companies in a variety of industries, including professional and technical services, insurance and financial services, construction, industrial services, manufacturing, and food and hospitality. Michael, along with his father, Kevin, is the co-author of Buying Out the Boss, The Successor's Guide to Succession Planning, which looks at at succession and transition planning from the perspective of the internal acquirer. He is a frequent guest speaker on topics such as value, building, succession, transition planning, and selling a business. Welcome, Michael Van, to the DealQuest podcast. Hey, Corey. Thanks for having me. Listen, it's great to have you on. I'm so excited about the topic we're going to talk about. I mean, we've got a lot we can talk about, uh, M&A in general, succession planning, which I know we're going to focus on a bit. And listeners, if you are really interested in the, uh, especially the succession planning portion of what we'll talk about today, and uh, you want to go back to episode 88, where I did a solo cast, where I also talked about internal succession. You know, you can supplement the wisdom Michael gives with, uh, with some things that I put on that solo cast. But Michael, before we get into all of that, I want to take you back to when you were growing up as a little kid, uh, maybe 8, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because my guess is a consultant and a banker, you know, and doing M&A and succession probably wasn't it at that time, but you tell me. You know, it wasn't, but at some level it was. So I always wanted to be a baseball player, right? Pitch for the Red Sox because I'm from the, the Boston area. 
and uh, I'm a left-hander, so I figured that would be a natural fit for me, (laughs) except for the the lack of talent. (laughs) Right. Uh, One minor missing, right? Yeah, one minor problem with that. But the other one is I always, you know, I was a big Family Ties uh, fan and loved uh, Alex B. Keaton. So there was always this kind of this background of business, and I grew up in a very entrepreneurial family. You know, my father uh, has owned a number of businesses, and so I always kind of had the bug for business. I didn't quite grasp, you know, the M&A side of it at the time, but certainly loved the concept of, of being in business and doing deals and, you know, being a part of that culture. I love it. So talking about, you know, having that mindset then and doing deals, what was your first deal of any type, whatever comes to mind? Oh, God, I think when I first started a career, I sold a coffee shop, you know, that was like <laughs> the first big deal that I did. It was like a coffee shop and it was a, they had a roasting operation with it as well. And, love it. Uh, it was funny. I looked at it and I was like, God, why am I not buying this thing? Because you know, back in those <laughs> days, they used to print money. But that was like my first good deal that I did when I first got started. Love it. Yeah. And then that, that space got a bit saturated over time, yeah. right? Great stuff. So, all right. So, we talked about it a little bit in your bio, but just, you know, give us a, just a few more sentences on, you know, exactly, uh, you know, what you do for clients. I know the internal succession's a part of it, but you also do external M&A deals, right? Yes, we do. You know, we kind of, our, our business falls, uh, we've got like three-legged stool, right? So one, one leg of the stool is the succession and transition planning piece, both, you know, the internal transaction side as well as, you know, the contemplation of what an overall exit's going to look like and it's going to be external or internal and we're just going to liquidate. Our second stool is we do a lot of strategy and leadership development work for growth companies. That's a lot of fun and it helps us uh, with the kind of positioning of these companies for sale in the long term. And then we have our, you know, both buy side and sell side on the M&A side. So we really try to provide our, our clients with a full life cycle of, uh, of support, regardless of where they are in that cycle. So let's start, you know, uh, just because uh, I did a recent solo cast, even more so because you, uh, are, you and your father are published authors on this topic. Let's start on the internal uh, succession conversation. And I know, you know, in the bio, we talked about, you know, that you said that the book is from the point of view of the internal successor, right? Uh, the buyer. Tell us about some of the, uh, you know, I mean, for me and my experience, because we do a lot of it as well, there's some really interesting conversations around, first of all, you know, just how you do it in general, but like the planning that it takes, determining who is the right successor. Do you have one? How do you structure that deal? Are you better off doing an external deal? Do you have to discount, you know, valuation on an, on an eternal deal? You know, some, I know I'm throwing a lot out here, but I just want to, you know, you can pick any of these. You know, I know in some industries, you know, there's a conversation about, well, why would I t- sell internally? Because a lot of times I got to self-finance that and I might as well keep my cash flow going out. Questions about can the next gen or whether it's family or non-family really run and take over the business? You know, there's a lot that comes up in internal succession. And then there are a lot of positives, right? They know the business, they may know the clients, uh, there's continuity, et cetera. You know, from your point of view, what are the biggest things that come up in terms of opportunities and challenges and, uh, you know, and prepping for an internal succession? I mean, I think at some level you nail them all because there are so many moving pieces to an internal transaction that it's it's a lot of fun. Like you never know what you're going to get into when you start them. And you know, as a as coming from a family business and and being a second generation, I just kind of have this desire to see that companies you know have that continuity if possible. You know, whether it's a family member or employee or you know group of employees that able to keep that company. You know, because it's there's such a lifeblood to our communities. You know, if you look at most companies in the organizations, that's the locally owned companies that are the ones contributing to, you know, the nonprofits in the area and, and, and are engaged. And when they get come in and they get bought by private equity or by a strategic, you kind of lose that in the community. 
So to me, that ability to keep these companies locally owned is, is just a great story, both for the company and for the community. So that's why we're kind of fascinated with those. And plus, you know, from a purely like philosophical standpoint, they're, they're just so much fun to work on because there are so many moving parts to it that no two are, are the same. Yeah. How does a, a single founder or multiple founders who are looking to, how do they evaluate whether they have the right people in place? And, you know, and what are the concerns also on the side, on the buying side? Yeah, I think, you know, the problem is they don't do a very good job of assessing that. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, I, you know, there was a stat, I think, that Mass Mutual or something had published in the study years ago that said something like 50% or 60% of founders didn't believe that their successor was prepared. Mm-hmm. A lot of founders don't put that level of effort into making sure that they have a successor in place which I, you know, I think is part of the challenge when we come in and it's like, okay, we don't have a management team, we don't have a successor, so we have to build that for them and help them do that. So that's definitely a challenging piece for them to deal with. I think the other side of it with the, the internal succession that's hard is that the buyer, I guess if we're going to call them that, or the interested party really has no clue what they're doing when they start this process. Right. You know, some of them come in with an inkling that they want to buy the business, others have been approached out of the blue. And so they're really just, they have no clear idea what it takes. So they're Incredible disadvantage when the process starts. Yeah, you know, one of the things that's interesting to me is that, you know, usually, and I, you know, this is a generalization, but, you know, usually the founders are entrepreneurs, quote unquote, right? They've started something from scratch and internal. If you're talking about existing people, they're employees. And I have no judgment, you know, on one or the other, but it is a different mentality. And the ability of, you know, employees to turn into owners and whether it's taking on the risk or being the ultimate, the buck stops with you, you know, that kind of thing. It's an interesting transition, right? It is. And I think it's one of the, um, if I call it a criticism of like the ESOP space and a lot of that is they push the employee ownership as being this end all be all. But as we know, most employees are employees for reasons. Right. So when that mindset comes out, oh, this is great for your employees and things like that an owner kind of gets obsessed with it, that they're doing the right thing for the employees by giving them this opportunity to do this. And they don't understand why the employees don't have a lot of interest in it when it comes up, because who wouldn't want to own their own business if you're a business owner? So that I think is really hard when you're dealing with employees. I think another stat we had I think was like, only like 6% of all transitions are to an employee. So it's a really small amount. Right. Because they are employees at, at their, and they're their nature. They're comfortable with that level of risk. That's right. So what are some of the ways, I mean, I, you know, you don't necessarily, you can still do an internal transition if it's not to an existing employee. You talked about, you know, building a management team. I mean, I mean, at some point there are existing employees, but, you know, you might be able to bring in new folks who are more inclined to take it over or bring in, you know, or bring in somebody outside who becomes a partner and then you take it over. Talk about some of those options uh, where maybe you don't have the right employees in place to run the business, but if you're smart enough in advance, you start to build, you know, people who can actually take over. Yeah. And I think that's when we talk to those owners. I mean, if we can catch an owner, you know, who's three to five years out on a succession, right. you know, that gives us time to start to position whether we're going to bring in someone from the outside who's going to be able to fill those shoes, or if we can uh, start to build and grow that leadership team. I was just on the phone last week with one of our clients who were selling and, you know, we've, we've got a good offer from a private equity group. And he said to me, see, you know, the, the biggest mistake is I never replaced myself. Right. You know, because it was creating issues with the deal right now. And I think a lot of owners, you know, don't realize that at the time because they don't want to give up the control. They don't spend the money and, and don't see the big picture of it. But, you know, making sure that the business can run without you is, you know, should be like priority number one for a business owner. Yeah. And the powerful part about that is that, as you illustrated there, if you do that successfully where it can run without you, 
there's more chance your internal folks could take over, but you're also more attracted to an external buyer. Yes. Oh, no doubt. You know, because they, you know, particularly if you're looking now more of those equity types or even the search funders and those, and those guys, they don't necessarily want to come in and be running the day-to-day side of the business. They want to be, you know, dealing with the strategic side of it. So the more stability in the management team, you know, the better you have of a, a chance of getting a sale completed. You know, I find, and it uh, sounds like you may as well, you can confirm or, or, or disagree. I think, you know, it's so... In the entrepreneurial world, uh, you know, entrepreneurs organization I was a member for many, many years, and uh, around the Yale community, as many entrepreneurial communities, there's always this talk about you know working on your business, not in your business, creating business that runs without you. You know, Michael Gerber, the E Myth, and a lot of that's you know discussed in the context of just you know being able to do that and having to be scalable. But I don't know that people really tie it into the difference in enterprise value and exit value that you can create as, as, as closely as it really does, you know, tie in, in the real world. I don't think they do. And that's why when we have those conversations with owners, particularly the ones who are maybe five or 10 years out, it's, we talked about in the context of building value versus scale. Yeah. You know, I hate to say that anyone can scale because it's certainly not easy, but it's certainly harder to build long-term value. So if you focus on that and think about it from that standpoint, that it gives you more options on an exit. You know, maybe you're going to hold the business for the next generation. That's an option if you've been focused on building value versus just trying to, to build scale for a quick sale. Yeah. So it totally makes sense to me that in addition to your internal succession, you know, work and experience and your buy side and sell side M&A experience that you have this consulting piece of what you do, leadership consulting, because, you know, that's crucial uh, to everything we were just talking about. Definitely. And, you know, the size companies that we deal with, which your typical half a million to $5 million EBITDA companies, they're typically privately owned second, maybe even third generation most of the time. So they haven't thought about those that thinking. They just know this is what they do. Right. So now to kind of flip that hat and say, oh, yeah, we, we want to build value. We want to have something tangible here that is going to be saleable or is going to be able to pass on to the next generation. There's a certain owner or mindset that, that comes with that we like to work with because they get it, you know, from a big picture standpoint. So let's talk about, you know, you mentioned second, third generation companies. The statistics on success, you know, on family businesses get dismal as you keep, as you go down the line, right? You know, uh, second generation does okay, you know, although some of them squander it, but the statistics aren't terrible. You jump to third generation, they, get, they drop a lot and it continues from there. What's been your experience and why do you think that's the case? Well, I think the, the indication is we've done well with second generation in affecting that transaction and keeping second generation vibrant in companies. I think with third generation and definitely with fourth, there's just such a drop off from the experience side of it. Yeah. If the business has lasted that long, it's clearly been a successful business in the past. In the next generation, I don't know if it's in a level of entitlement or if it's they're in it because it's more of an obligation yeah. than, than a passion for the business. Whereas the second generation, if they're in there, they're typically there because, you know, they grew up in the business and they love the business. Right. Third generation and fourth generation don't, you don't see that as much. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. And, and obviously, things are changing in terms of gender and things like that. But, you know, the, the stereotypical, you know, son working under the old man founder, you know, just has been groomed from the minute, you know, and, and directly instilled with the values and the approach or whatever from the father. And, and it just gets diluted from there. Plus, also, in my mind, it's also a numbers game, right? One of the practical problems that you end up with is that each next level of generation gets exponentially bigger, right? Assuming that yes. people have more than one kid, which most people do, right? So that's another problem that I see is it's the math gets crazy. I mean, uh, I've got some clients where 
you know, there were like 16 members of the family that owned pieces of it. And then, you know, some people work in it and not, and it caused all, all kinds of drama. There's just so many more issues. We had that problem with a fourth generation business in the way it was, I think there was, I'm trying to remember now, it was like 16 or 17 different individual shareholders in the second generation built the governance and the ownership transition, you know, with the concept that everyone is going to get along and, and right. like each other and want to be in business together. And it was just such an absolute mess because they were basically three different families within this initial thing. And they each owned a third of the company and you could only tra- sell the shares <laughs> within your third. And um, they would, you know, the one group that was completely inactive in the business would horse trade to get what, you know, with the other ones to get what they wanted so they could get it just, it, they squandered the business by the time we got to the fourth generation. We were called in to try to see if we could save it. It was just impossible. They were at the point where they would rather inflict pain on themselves if it meant inflicting pain on the other side. They'd rather lose than let the other side get a win. So Yeah, boy. And, and doesn't that, I've obviously come across this as well. And then, you know, as a lawyer in my case, or as a, you know, a, a, an advisor, consultant, uh, investment banker in your case, you know, you end up trying to play psychologist, a psychiatrist, right? Which we're not trained for, or at least counselor. And sometimes, yeah, I mean, it's just impossible. I mean, I've, I've seen it. I've got a client where, I mean, it's amazing. They operate successful. They have seven or eight companies and, and the, the company's successful and it's so dysfunctional. And I look, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, wow, how much more successful could they be? If they're this successful, totally dysfunctional, you know, like how much more successful could they be if they actually, you know, functioned? It's amazing. Yeah. Got some great stories over the years from seeing some of that stuff. Yeah, I'm sure. I remember I get one other story. I grew up in New York, and there was a big uh, sporting goods store, which anybody in New York knows, called Paragon. There was a time when you would have to pay for whatever you bought on the first floor of the store, and then if you also bought stuff on the second floor, you'd have to pay for that at separate registers on the second floor. And everybody was confused why, and, it was, and the reason was because it was two brothers on the store couldn't get along, and the way they split it was they split the floors of the store, and, and they were running as separate businesses for a while. So it's crazy. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. All right, so let's start talking about now the M&A market, more external deals. Talk to us about some of the industries where you've seen the most activity. You know, what are you seeing out there? I know in a lot of industries we've seen, you know, there's a lot of money out there. Talk about what you're seeing in terms of availability of capital, in terms of level, you know, frequency of deals, in terms of impact of recent events like COVID and whatever. What are you seeing in the market? Yeah, so it was interesting. When COVID hit, I think we had like three deals that were either under LOI in purchase and sell or about to go into one of the two. And it just like, boom, stopped. Right. Everything shut. We didn't hear anything from anybody. You know, basically one of those deals is going forward. The other two, the other two died. That one should hopefully close uh, next week. But then around May, we started to kind of see this resurgence of, of activity where the buyers started popping up again to see what we had for inventory, what was going on. And suddenly we saw this acceleration of activity from sellers. You know, we've got like a great inventory of companies right now that are either on market or about to go. 
in, if you'd asked me that was going to happen in April, May, I would have said no way. But <laughs> I think what you're seeing is that a lot of business owners are saying, you know, I was going to give this a couple more years, but after dealing with this, I don't want to deal with it. So let's accelerate that process. It's so interesting to me how this happens in every cycle, right? Where, you know, when valuations are at the top, right? And by the way, we never know exactly when the top is, right? right. But, you know, in hindsight, at least when values are at the top, a lot of people all get out because it's good times, right? And then, you know, some adversity comes and things drop, finances are up, or the economy looks tough. And yeah, like, you know, somebody's in their 60s or whatever it is, right? And they look and they say, you know what, do I want to go through another down cycle and come back up and have to be in this thing five plus years, you know, more, you know, and then they sell and they end up a lot of times, I mean, although this time's a little weird because it was such a dip and then come back, you know, so I'd be curious to what, what you see on valuation. But in general, you know, they leave some money on the table because they get out when things are on the downside. Yeah. I mean, from evaluations, it's still early. I mean, I've read the studies and stuff that AMAA has put out and a couple others are showing valuations down 20, 25% or something. We haven't seen it yet. You know, we have one deal that went on, it's, we're negotiating the LOI right now, and the multiple is right in line with where we expected it to be mm-hmm. when we took it to market pre-COVID. We have another one where the multiple is really going to be uh, higher than what we had projected, despite the company kind of suffering right now because of, because of COVID. The fundamentals of it are still strong, and we're, you know, working through deal structure to kind of balance that off. But we haven't seen any real impact on valuation yet. And the attitude I've taken with my clients is there's no reason to panic. Yeah. There's still plenty of money out there. There's still active buyers. So if they want, want your company, if you've come through this reasonably well, why change your expectations at this point? So, yeah, you know, it's interesting something you said about taking care of the deal structure. That uh, I'm curious because what I'm seeing is, and it may be consistent with that comment you made, is I'm seeing valuations holding as well in the industries that we deal in. I am seeing some changes in deal structures to, uh, you know, maybe shift some of the risk, yeah. you know, to the seller, maybe more on an earnout or back end or, you know, some contingencies yeah. or whatever. So it sounds like you're seeing the same thing. We are. We're seeing, you know, a little bit more towards earnouts or seller notes and then with some clawback provisions. Yeah. You know, so I mean, if it's not a, an earnout per se, it's like, all right, if it is within a certain range, we're going to be, we're fine. You know what, if it's within 10% or something, we're not going to care. But if not, then we're going to start to claw back against that, that seller note a little bit, which I think is a fair, a fair trade-off for both companies, you know, because as you know, your sellers want the cash at closing and anything beyond that is a little bit at risk. And so if they take some risk with their, with their note, I think they're comfortable with that. And if you're the buyer, well, you were going to kind of put that amount of cash into the deal anyway, so you're protect on the backside. So I like that structure and using the clawback versus some of the earnout methodology. Because everyone goes, well, how am I going to get my earn out? What if they, I'm not running the company? Right. I agree with you. And I, we've seen a lot of that same thing with clawbacks. And yeah, and it's like, you know, if the business hits its numbers, why wouldn't they pay full price on it, right? And if it doesn't, they have a protection. So I agree. I don't know that the listeners know where you're located and whatever. So give them a little context of where you are, what type of businesses you deal with. And, you know, where are you seeing the deals happening? Any particular industries? We're in the Springfield, Massachusetts area, which we're basically half hour north of Hartford and 90 minutes west of Boston. So we're a very strong manufacturing market. A lot of precision aerospace is in this market, precision medical, things like that. So we deal a lot in that market with manufacturing, although we're, we're agnostic. We do construction deals. We do you know, professional services and technical services. But 
where we've been putting a lot of emphasis has been on the precision manufacturing side of it because we they're good solid deals. There's an asset base. You know, if you've got the right customer and mix, they're very sticky for an acquirer. So they've been a good market to pursue. The only downside is that so many of them been transacted over the years. There's fewer and fewer privately held ones that, to take the market. Right. And it's interesting that area, I mean, not to, you know, I mean, unfortunately, like everything else these days, you know, manufacturing has become political, you know, uh, yeah. conversation. So, uh, you know, not looking to go there. But my understanding, and you tell me just as a mug, I mean, listen, traditional manufacturing, steel, coal, whatever, I don't care what anybody says, that's going to continue to go down. But this precision manufacturing and technical, you know, and the medical, like all the stuff you're talking about, my understanding has been a growth area. It has. Because, you know, there's a lot of that market was, you know, our market's a great example of that. In the 60s and 70s, you know, someone like a Pratt & Whitney or Hamilton Standard, they would spin off all these employees into their own little shops because they didn't want them in-house and they would feed them work and those guys would either grow or they would stay in that size. A lot of those guys have died off, you know, or retired or, or whatever. So, you know, but Pratt and Hamilton and GE, they still all have the same demand for machine parts. So there's a demand, it's a need. And the cost of capital to get in because you're now buying five axis precision machines and everything else has really made it harder for smaller shops to survive. So that's why you're seeing a lot of that transactional activity. It's like, oh, we can pull three or four of these shops together and suddenly we've got a million dollar EBITDA company versus you know a couple million and a half, two million ones. And that's obviously worth a lot more from that aggregation standpoint. Sure, absolutely. What are some of the biggest mistakes that people make in trying to get deals done? <laughs> I think we could write a book on that one. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, keep it through a few. We don't have like hours and hours. <laughs> I think there's always, you know, and it's, and it's, a, it's human nature, right? To put a, a higher value on what it's worth. Yeah. And the assumption of that value for someone like we, I talked to a guy last week at called and said, was telling me about his business and he said, oh, this, is, this is the number I want. And I said, well, how many employees, how much revenue? It was just him, you know, sole business, everything else. He's like, well, someone should pay me, you know, a million dollars in cash because of this. And I said, but you're just, you're no different than I am as a service provider, you know, and it's, and he could never understand why another broker didn't want to take his deal on, right? So that mindset that we've, that our business is worth more than what it is because we've made a nice living at it is definitely a problem. Another one that I think is out there and you'll appreciate this one is how many bad attorneys there are in the choice of attorneys, I always tell my clients, the first thing they can do is make sure you pick a good attorney who knows commercial transactions. Yeah. You know, don't give me the guy who does a little bit of this and some real estate and some divorce work and everything else. He's going to get eaten alive by someone who knows what they're doing. And they're going to cost you a lot of money and probably cost you the deal. Right. It's interesting. I feel like that's been a competitive advantage for us um, out there. And, and I try to, I actually say to, you know, prospects when I get referred in on deals, I always say to them, listen, you know, if you're not going to go with me, go with somebody like me. Just don't use your local guy, no matter how many years you've been, you know, whatever, who handled your landlord tenant matter or, or even, you know, did your small corporate work, like, you know, your, your operating agreement, whatever. We do that stuff. We do contractual stuff. But there are attorneys who say they do M&A and, and, you know, maybe they've done a, a coffee shop deal here or there. But, yeah. you know, <laughs> but yeah, you're absolutely right. The frustrating part for us, because, you know, as soon as it gets into the attorney's hands, if they're not qualified, it just gets ugly. They it's, you know, returning fees and missing things. So it's a big sticking point for us is, is who legal counsel is. Yeah. Give us one more so we don't end on the lawyer comment. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to pick on lawyers. I think, you know, there's the third side of it, which is the emotional side of it, right? Yeah. 
and again, it's not something you can blame. It's a human nature with the businesses, but they let that emotion sometimes just uh, drive the transaction. And I've seen that on both sides, right? There's a, you know, a seller, you know, who's just gets tied up to the most ridiculous, you know, things that they need or they want that aren't rational. Um, and I've also seen it on the buyer side where they just get so obsessed with getting the deal done that they just, they lose sight of why they were doing the transaction and why it made sense. And now they're getting down into, you know, an offer that doesn't make sense because they get obsessed with getting the deal done, like having the trophy. You know, it's interesting. I had that conversation actually this morning with a client on the uh, seller side. You know, one of the things that happens with sellers is that they have in their mind the deal's done way before it's done, right? And yeah. that may mean for them, uh, whether it's, you know, planning their next business, whether it's planning that trip around the world or that beach house they're going to buy or, awesome. you know, playing golf 200 rounds a year or whatever it is for them, right? They already go there and psychologically they're there. And then, you know, the deal evolves as due diligence, uh, you know, the terms are retraded or whatever it is. And there's a deal now on the table that they would have never taken up front, but they're so psychologically and emotionally invested in it that they keep going. Or they've let the business kind of slide during that time. Yeah. We see that a lot. And, you know, when you're dealing with deals that are tied to trailing 12-month EBITDAs and, you know, or they start to see a little softness in the backlog, man, you know, a smart buyer is going to pounce on those. So we try to educate our sellers about, like, don't take that foot off the pedal. Yeah. And, uh, the other thing we try to educate them too is uh, the what's going to happen in due diligence. Yes. And it's kind of bizarre, but you don't know it until you experience it and how painful of a process it can be. You know, we had a deal last year. There must have been, I think in my data room, there were probably 40 different people. Like the law firm alone was probably 25. Right. You know, we had environmental people and IT people and HR people. And, you know, like, well, why did the utility goal bill go up last July? Maybe it was hotter than it was the July before, you know, but those types of questions and just the overwhelming nature of it can eat you alive. And one of the things that we've done, and it's true for any of the professionals that has really, I think, helped facilitate our clients get deals done is, you know, if you do have a good dealer and, you know, accountant and broker and all that stuff, they're going to know what the, and I'm talking about on the, on the seller side, they're going to know what the buyer is going to be looking for, right? Because we've done this a thousand times before, right? So what you want to do, folks, is you want to go through a pre-due diligence process with your professionals where you anticipate everything that, you know, a buyer is going to ask for, even before you put the, ideally, even before you put the company on the market. And, oh, definitely. Yeah, and then you're, you're set. I mean, I remember I did a deal for a, uh, a company in the stock photography industry, sold out for like about $23 million some years back to a public company. And, you know, we knew it was a public company. So, you know, the due diligence is even going to be, you know, even more stringent, right? And, you know, we had them and I made sure the other professionals do when, you know, when they came in and you got to understand folks, if you don't on, on some of these, and not that 23 million is a huge deal, but, you know, it's a medium sized deal. Yep. You know, they came in, they had like, I mean, they had like a dozen, 15 people, right? Doing due diligence between legal and financial and whatever. And, you know, they're looking for anything, whether it's, you know, a missing signed key contract, you know, which there's no problem in the relationship, but that's not up to date to, you know, issues in the financials or whatever. And you have to keep in mind that a lot of the people who are working on the deal, I'm not talking about the people, decision makers to buy, but I'm talking about the employees who are working on the deal, doing the due diligence from a buyer's side, that they're worried if they miss something and the deal goes bad after it's done, that their job's at stake, right? So they're looking for anything that could be a problem. And sometimes where there's smoke, there's fire, but sometimes where it seems like there's smoke, there is no fire. But the problem is if they think there's smoke, they're going to be worried there's fire and your deal's going to die. So you really want this to be buttoned up. Well, it's funny, you know, we had a, a new client that asked us, well, what, what could go wrong? 
you know, when we're, we're talking. You couldn't even explain. I said, I can tell you a hundred things. It'll be the hundred and first. That will suddenly be this huge issue that you would never think in a million years. But someone, some analyst somewhere or some guy is going to say, well, that's a problem. I said, so our job is to find as many as those as possible. But I can guarantee you there's still going to be one or two that are going to pop through. That You're nuts that that's an issue. But to your point, someone is worried about it. Yeah. And, and listen, some, yeah, some of them you have to react on the fly. But, you know, but I, I also feel like the more buttoned up you are, the more like that, it just gives, gives a buyer a comfort level. Oh, these guys, you know, they're on top of their game, right? It just psychologically has them think there's less likelihood that there's a problem. Then, you know, if you're missing signed addendums to a contract or your financials are a little messed up or you don't have technology licenses for some key tech, you know, whatever it is, right? You know, it just gets them worried. You know, we have a client right now that we've started with, you know, they started the process mentally five years ago, started with his own data room, people to get his financials cleaned up and everything else. And you know, he knew the number that he was going to get to from a revenue standpoint that was going to trigger the sales. So, I mean, you'd love to have a every every one of your sellers in that. In <laughs> Absolutely. that Absolutely. It makes it, it makes it easy. And he's like, all right, what do I need to know? What am I missing? What am I, you know, so they're great sellers that have a prepared one. Love it. So before we uh, conclude, I, you know, I'm going to give you an opportunity to let people know where to find you and ask you my last question. Any last thoughts that you want to share with the audience on, you know, any of this? It's always a tricky question. I think if we're looking at the context of things right now is, you know, be prepared. Yeah. You know, if you're contemplating that exit, you know, or even if you're not contemplating an exit, recognize that you're going to exit at some point. So, you know, start that preparation process uh, sooner rather than later. They always say to our clients, you never know when the bus is going to come. Be prepared for that bus to change your life quickly. So have the company in a good spot for it. Love it. So, Michael, I'm sure people got a lot of value from this. If they want to find out more about you and your company, what's the best place for them to go? So you can find us uh, on the web at van, which is V-A-N-N-group.com. And you can also, if you want to check out the book, you can find it on Amazon or you can find it uh, on our website, buyingoutheboss.com. Love it. All right. My final question of the podcast is always about my highest value, which is freedom. And for me, that is everything from freedom from all people in the world, from oppression to the reason I'm an entrepreneur, right? And I don't have a boss. So what does freedom mean to you and how does it affect your business and life? I think freedom to me is the ability to, two things, it's the ability to come and go and then to have the financial wherewithal to make those things happen. So if you want to go and do something, you have the ability to do it. You know, we're not talking crazy amounts of money, but just that comfort level that, yeah, if I don't work today, it's okay. If we want to go do something a little bit different today, we can do it if we want to buy something. So to me, there's just a tremendous amount of stability that comes with knowing that from being self-employed, that you have control over you know, what you make and when you work. To me, that's a great freedom. Love it. Michael Van, thank you so much for being a guest on the DealQuest podcast. Thanks for having me, Corey. It's been fun. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, 
wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.